0: Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia AudioCast. In this week's episode, we have Death of a Dead Man by Wayland Rice, originally published in the September 1945 issue of Thrilling Detective. Rice was a pseudonym of Norman A. Daniels, used mostly in the Thrilling books. Beginning in 1933, Daniels was one of the company's most productive writers, often writing under several pseudonyms. Daniels crafted more than 30 stories for the Phantom Detective, Thrilling's answer to The Shadow, in 1939, he created the Black Bat to run in the company's Black Book Detective. He also wrote The Mask Detective, The Crimson Mask, and the Candid Camera Kids series. On top of that, Daniels wrote more than 20 Dan Fowler G-Man stories in G-Men, G-Men Detective, and the Don's Winslow of the Navy series. The Prolific Scribe also contributed stories to Doc Savage and The Shadow. This story is one of the first published under the Wayland Rice name, which Daniels would continue to use throughout the 1950s. This story is included in our recent release from Brick Pickle Media, Thrilling Detective Pulp Tales Volume 3, now available in print and ebook formats. It collects six vintage pulp novels from the tattered pages of Thrilling Detective. It can be ordered from Amazon or any other bookstore, and you can get a discounted price by ordering direct from our website. That link is in the show notes. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2020. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. If you'd like to support our efforts, you can find a link to all of our books and our entire online store on the website. And with that, on with the show. Death of a Dead Man by Wayland Rice. Attorney Clint Byron finds a picture of guilt to fit into a sinister murder frame. Chapter 1 the condemned. Clint Byron, attorney of some 18 hours now, glanced up at the imposing courthouse and smiled. He knew that building. As a police detective sergeant, he had testified there before various judges and juries many times, and through these years he had studied law during every available spare moment he could find. Now he no longer wore a badge, but there was a framed diploma from law school in his room. That was even better. Clint Byron didn't think the changeover from the art of nabbing crooks to prosecuting them was much, and his one ambition was to get on the district district attorney's staff. He had been half-promised such a post. Clint Byron was exactly 30, and he was enjoying his birthday. He was dreaming of other birthdays, too, in the future. Someday he wanted to hear Lieutenant Bradley of Homicide say sir to him when he was on the DA's staff. Bradley had been the bane of Byron's existence during his years as a detective sergeant. He started to climb the big, wide steps to the courthouse entrance. There was some work going on. Scaffolding was being erected and a dozen men were working on the job. Apparently, the old building was about to get some kind of a facelift. He also saw a slim, thin-faced young man who was slowly backing down the steps, apparently counting the stairs as he did. He had a wild shock of Auburn hair and a tight expression was around his mouth when he turned around. Byron had to sidestep one of the supports and the two men bumped into one another. Look where you're going! The young man snarled. Clint Byron hesitated just a bare fraction of a second. His first impulse was to take the young man by the collar and shake him until his teeth rattled. But he gave up that idea. It was a cop's method he was an attorney now, with a reputation to acquire. He just stepped aside and kept on going. The cops inside the building greeted him with hoots and jibes. He had expected this and countered the joking as expertly as he could. Then he saw Lieutenant Bradley. Bradley was red-faced, big and burly. He had no hair at all in the disposition of a wild bull with a toothache. Well, well, if ain't Barrister Clint Byron. You better be faster on the draw on the legal racket than you were as a cop, Clint. If I ever catch you chasing the ambulances, it'll be too bad for you. The only ambulance I'd chase would be one going to pick up what was left of you, Lieutenant. And my sole reason would be to gloat a little. If you don't mind, I want to go into the courtroom. Has Fadden been sentenced yet? Now, you can go in like a good little Boy Scout. Sit down and hear Fred and sent to the chair where the rat belongs. I sent him there, and I wish to heaven he was a client of yours. He'd be walking out of here by now if he was. See you later, Lieutenant. If you should happen to break your neck and want to stew I'd be more than glad to represent you. Gratis. He elbowed past Bradley, and shoving that big hulk around was a symphony to Clint Byron's elbows. Bradley always insisted his men salute and step aside when he approached. But Byron did not underrate the detective lieutenant. Bradley was astute a cop as they come. He dug his nose into a case and kept it there until someone paid the piper. Byron respected him for that, but disliked the man personally. Byron nodded to an assistant DA. He greeted a bailiff and shook hands with him smiling appreciation of the elderly bailiff's wishes for good luck. The DA himself hardly deigned to speak to a mere attorney, especially a brand new one who had once been a cop. Byron sat down, he knew the judge, and drew a nod of recognition from him. Judge Fowler had been his father's friend, too, and had helped young Byron tremendously in gaining admittance to law school. There were two men lined up before the judge. One was a beefy individual with a crew-cut haircut, wrinkled clothing, and a wholly aggressive attitude. Beside him was his attorney, noted for trickiness, but in this case outwitted by the DA and the airtight case he had presented. Byron heard Judge Fowler solemnly intone the death sentence. Red-faced, beefy Fred Fadden sneered openly. This killer was not afraid. He was aware the death sentence would never be carried out because he knew too much. The judge and the DA were aware of the reason for Fadden's open derision. They knew Fadden was in a position to bargain for his life and possibly cheat the chair because of what he knew. There was hardly an angle which Fadden didn't somehow figure. Lieutenant Bradley swept into the courtroom with two detectives. He was handcuffed to one man and they let him out. Another case began promptly, for Fadden's sentencing had been only a mere interlude. Clint Byron stayed where he was and studied the actions of the lawyers on the new case. No more than three minutes had gone by before there was a single shot, a shout, and then pandemonium. Byron leaped to his feet, the cop instinct still strong. He raced into the corridor, downed it into the big entrance of the building. There he saw several things simultaneously. Fred Fadden lay on the steps, his face an unrecognizable, blood-stained mass. Beside him, and still chained to the dead Fadden, was one of Bradley's detectives. He was groaning and seemed to have been hit. The other detective, with drawn gun, was menacing the skinny faced, red headed young man who had bumped into Byron a few moments before. Nearby lay a nickel plated revolver of huge dimensions. Some men were scrambling down from the scaffolding. Patrolmen were rushing up the steps. Byron stood there and gaped, instinctively knew just what had happened. Lieutenant Bradley barged past him, arousing Byron to follow the big detective. Perhaps Bradley was so accustomed to having Clinton Byron present in a scene like this, he temporarily forgot the man longer was a cop. The detective with the gun did some quick explaining. McCarthy and I were walking down the steps with Fadden. We were taken with the car at the curb for a quick trip to the death house. This lug starts coming toward us. As he got close, he whipped out the gun that's lying there at his feet. I started to close with him, but he tripped me and I went down in a heap. There was a shot, just one. Fadden went down like a log. The slug was to hit Bradley, too. Fool, Bradley said through his teeth. He swung toward the skinny-faced young man. Want to talk? I killed him. Sure I killed him. Bradley took his arm. He glanced at the detective. Take care of the gun. Don't smear the prints. Watch McCarthy, too. There's an ambulance on the way. Anybody else witness this? A man in work clothes approached. "Uh, I did, Lieutenant. You know me. I'm, I'm Allison. Ross Allison. I was on the scaffolding. Regular box seat. Happened just as the detective explained it. The young sap must be out of his head. All I want is justice, the redhead said. Bradley propelled him up the steps and away from the gathering crowd. You'll get the swiftest taste of justice any man ever got, he promised. You admit you killed Fadden. Will you make a signed confession? I killed him, the redhead said stoically. Bradley pushed him through the courthouse doors and dragged and shoved him down the corridor toward the courtroom, which Fadden had been sentenced to death. Outside, Clint Byron moved a little slower. He knelt beside the wounded detective and assured himself the man wasn't critically hurt. The bullet seemed to be lodged in his neck. As Byron started to rise, he saw a bit of wax paper crumpled and partially burned. He picked it up. Nobody was watching me he tucked the thing into his pocket. He hadn't the vaguest idea as to what it meant, but automatically he kept it. The old cop instinct was still strong. He turned back into the courthouse and hurried to the courtroom where the regular case now being tried had been interrupted. The red-headed young man with Bradley beside him stood before the bench. Judge Fowler looked down at him. You admit shooting Fadden he said. You are formally confessing to murder in open court. The case is quite clear-cut, apparently, but this court must abide by precedent. You will be placed under arrest, held without bail, and brought before the grand jury for indictment. I can't allow you to plead guilty to murder. Mr. Clerk, enter a plea of not guilty on behalf of the accused. Now, young man, who are you? Why did you do this ghastly thing? I won't give my name or address, the defendant stated promptly and deserved to die. Everybody hated him, but I hate him a little more than the others. That's all I'm going to say. He'll talk, Lieutenant Bradley promised. Judge Fowler cleared his throat. This young man presents an odd case, but apparently he has no money with which to retain an attorney. Perhaps he doesn't even want one, but in cases of murder, an attorney must be furnished. The court will appoint one. Judge Fowler's eyes lifted and began to sweep the courtroom. Clint Byron pressed himself back against his chair so hard he hoped he would merge with the wood. He knew it was in Judge Fowler's mind, and he wanted none of it. He didn't want to defend a surly fool like this, nor even take a meager part in such an open and shut case. His dreams were of prosecuting someone like the redhead, not defending him. "'Attorney Byron,' Judge Fowler called. Clint Byron reluctantly got to his feet. "'Attorney, the court appoints you guardian protein if this accused is underage. Otherwise you provide for his defense the best of your ability.' Lieutenant Bradley smirked happily. The DA rubbed his hands. Judge Fowler was smiling expansively, and Clint Byron glanced at everyone in the courtroom, especially the redhead he didn't like anyway. Uh, thank you, Your Honor. I'll do my level best for him. But as you stated, this is a homicide case. Perhaps an attorney as young and inexperienced as I am cannot do justice to such a case. Judge Fowler waved his hand. Think nothing of that, attorney. I'm sure you will do what you can for this young man. Court is adjourned for 20 minutes. CHAPTER TWO THE CLIENT WANTED DEATH Clint Byron sighed deeply and walked over to where Lieutenant Bradley was putting handcuffs on his prisoner. Bradley was enjoying himself hugely and was none too gentle about the way he handled that young man. Byron studied the redhead's face intently then looked at his hands and wrists. Look here, he said sharply. I'm your lawyer, whether you want me or not. As far as that goes, whether I want to be your lawyer or not. Have you any bruises on your body? Any bruises at all? "'No. I'm okay.' "'What's the idea?' Bradley demanded. "'You're going to turn copper again and solve this case against me? "'May make it out. is not murder at all. "'Fan, had a heart attack. "'My detective just suffered a stroke out there on the courthouse steps.' "'Hardly,' Clint Byron smiled. "'But if my client signs a confession "'and there are any marks of violence on his body after that, "'I'll know who to hold responsible.' "'He looked back at his client. "'Now see here. What is your name?' "'I'm not talking.' "'Okay, don't. Not one word. you said enough already. "'I'll come to see you later, in your cell. You can take him away, Lieutenant.' Bradley snapped to attention and saluted. "'Yes, sir. Anything to oblige. "'Boy, what a case you got. A lemon if I ever saw one. "'Come on, Mr. Anonymous.' Clint Byron closed his eyes in resignation as the prisoner was led away. He turned and walked to the judge's chambers. Fowler father was waiting for him. "'I knew you'd come to see me, Clint.' The judge offered his hand. Now don't start bawling me out for appointing you as the young man's attorney. I know exactly how you feel. You want to prosecute. Naturally, having been a detective, you would. However, as an attorney, it's best that you see things from both sides of the fence. As I must do when I'm on the bench. Accomplish what you can for your client. I know it can't be much. Judge, I was going to refuse openly to take the case. That redhead needs an undertaker, not a lawyer. He's as good as dead already, even if he did murder a rat like Fadden, who was already a dead man. What can I do for him? What does he deserve to have done for him? Perhaps nothing. And yet, he must have possessed a horrible will to kill Fadden. There's a great reason somewhere in the boy's background. Perhaps sufficient to cause a withdrawal of the murder charges. And Clint impressed the jury with the idea that Fadden was a condemned man, as good as dead already. Alright, I'll do my best. Personally, I think my client should go to the chair. And for my first case as an attorney, I'm none too proud of it. Now Wait. Judge Fowler broke in quickly. His voice grew stern. An attorney, Clint, takes an oath to help people in trouble. That's your job. A hopeless case like this one should be a challenge to you. Accept it as such and remember you are now a lawyer, not a detective. You'll work in complete opposites to the way you formerly did. Come to me if you need any help. I'm automatically disqualified anyhow. Thank you, Judge. I'll see the redhead as soon as Bradley will let me. Bradley sent word via patrolman-clerk that Byron could see the prisoner in 24 hours and not before. The new attorney felt his irish rising. He proceeded to the first open court and asked for a writ. Furthermore, he was eloquent enough to get it and took savage delight in waving the writ in front of Bradley's face. Okay, so you win the right to see the killer. What's it going to get you? He wrote out a full confession in his own hand without any prompting or intimidation. Get around that if you can. Maybe I will. Have not brought out to the visitor's room. Bradley shook his head. You know better than that. Murders are kept in their cells and you'll be locked in with him. Let me give you a friendly tip. The redhead is an oyster. He won't even tell you what time it is. I intend to have him burn and you can't do a thing about it. Byron didn't reply to that because Bradley's intentions were exactly proper. The prisoner didn't have a chance. Byron sighed and followed the patrolman to the cell block. He stepped into the cell, sat down beside his client and offered him a cigarette, which was refused. Now look here. You can trust me. I want to help you. Sure you do. You used to be a cop. You'll be working right with that big gorilla who questioned me. Anyway, if you were the best friend I had, I'd still refuse to talk. Don't waste your time on me. I'm a dead pigeon. It doesn't make any difference to me. Clint Byron was studying the boy. He had dropped his attitude of arrogance and surliness now and showed vague traces of worry and fear. He was clean cut. His hands were smooth and his words were those of an educated man. You positively refuse to tell me what your name is or why you shot Fadden? I positively do. Honest, Mr. Byron, I feel sorry for you. I know you didn't want to handle my case. Just go through the routine and let it go at that. I haven't got a chance anyway. Where did you get the gun? Byron asked. I'm not talking, I said. Who paid you to kill Fadden? Byron persisted, and this question to a quick response. Too quick. Don't get ideas like that, the redhead said. Nobody paid me. I killed him because he because he deserved to die. There is no one else mixed up in this, so keep that straight. Now you can ask questions all day and I won't say another word. Go away and leave me alone. Sure, Byron arose. Here, take this. He thrust the metal cigarette lighter at the young man who automatically accepted it. He handed it back to the observation that he didn't smoke and had no use for it. Clayton took the lighter daintily and wrapped it in his handkerchief. All I wanted was your prints," he explained. "I'll help you, even if you. I'll help you even if you don't want me to." The cops took my print. They're not on file. I was never fitting a printer before. Maybe not, but these prints I may be able to get a line on who you are. Maybe even get a few ideas. You see, Fadden did deserve to die. He was legally dead anyway. And while I know I can't get you off, I may be able to convince the jury you had good and sufficient reasons for shooting them. That means the difference between life and death to you. So long. I'll drop in again when I feel like talking to myself. Byron hammered on the cell door until a patrolman let him out. He left headquarters and headed for a small public park. That would have to serve as his office temporarily. Anyway, he had no need of law books in this case. What he required was some cooperation and a certain amount of solid brain work. He thought about Fadden first. The ex-gangster and present-day political crook had had enemies galore. Perhaps a score of important people would sleep more easily because he was dead. If Byron couldn't bring himself to believe that the anonymous killer had been paid to shoot Fadden, the manner in which the killing had been done smacked more of a personal motive. If he could determine that motive, he might be able to trace the red-headed young killer and puzzle out some sort of a heart-rending motivation for his crime. Fadden, he was well aware, had always delegated someone else to do his dirty work, but the murder for which he had been sentenced to death had been that of Tony Page, a mild clerk in a wholesale house. Witnesses had seen Fadden cut the man down with four slugs. Fadden wouldn't talk about it and police opinions indicated that Tony Page must have witnessed some crime Fadden was engaged in or had stumbled upon information which meant ruin for the F gang boss. The DA's office had another theory, developed out of Blue Sky Only, that Page had been a petty crook in Fadden's pay and had somehow double-crossed him. So far as Byron knew, Fadden hadn't personally killed any other person. Quite logically, he assumed that the young man he represented had been inspired to kill Fadden by some potent, irresistible urge. Most killers who committed crimes in such cold blood were exacting the ancient eye for an eye. Therefore, it was possible that Fadden killed someone this client of Byron's loved. Tony Page? Well, why not? He was the only man Fadden had been known to have murdered. With the development of that idea, Clint Byron turned to another motive, that of the redhead having been paid to commit the crime. Fadden's enemies had been numerous, and among them were half a dozen men who towed the mark because Fadden could have ruined their careers and businesses. There was Eddie Conlin, for instance. Conlin had been a detective, taking bribes and generally doing Fadden's bidding till he became too ambitious and Fadden cracked down. Conlin had been fired, but the full story of his wrongdoing had not been brought to light. Fadden knew. Fadden might have sent him to the chair with that knowledge. Then there was Alan Drake, one of those shadowy politicians who sits well back, persuades others to do the actual running while he pulls the strings and fattens his purse. Fadden knew all about Drake and more than once had made the man cringe by threatening to expose his activities. There were a number of minor individuals who would gloat. City inspectors, engineers, crafty real estate holders, grafting officials of the type with which any large city is ridden. There were too many of them. Byron couldn't sort them out. He decided to work on the theory that his client was somehow related to Tony Page, because Fadden had murdered Page, had taken justice into his own hands. Clint Byron found out quickly enough where Tony Page had lived. It was a little bungalow in a suburban area where the man had stayed on after his wife's death some years before. Byron developed a certain degree of hope when he learned that Tony Page had a son named Harry, whose present whereabouts were unknown. Byron rode the subway and then a bus to reach the vicinity of Tony Page's bungalow. It was dark now, and the little house, unlighted, had a deserted look. The lawyer stepped up under the porch and tried the door. It was locked. He moved over to a window and shrugged. "'Why be orthodox about it?' he asked himself and smashed the window with his foot. No alarm was raised, and after he sure of this, he pried away the broken glass, raised the window, and slipped into the house. Quite boldly, he turned on lights. They were stuffed over everything. The little possessions of a man of moderate means were neatly placed, but the house had not been lived in for weeks, perhaps since Tony Page's death. Byron found the kitchen. It was provided with a medium-sized electric refrigerator, which he opened and found to be fairly well stocked. An open can of beans attracted his attention. Half the contents had been removed. The remaining beans were fresh and soft, without any hard film over the surface. A quart of milk was sweet, and there was even a package of cold luncheon meat, which couldn't have been sliced any more than a day or two before. The kitchen was reasonably free of dust, too, showing it had been recently used. Byron wandered through the other rooms. He found one where the walls were decorated by a couple of college pennants and some high school and college prom dance cards. There had been some pictures on the walls also, for the paper was faded, but the pictures were gone. On the bureau lay a set of silver back brushes. Clint Byron purloined a couple of handkerchiefs from a drawer and wrapped the brushes in them. He had an idea he was getting somewhere. And that's the end of this week's episode. We'll be back next week with part two of our story. Thanks for listening today. Just a reminder, if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production. We'll be back with a new episode next week.